you today. And also a special welcome to those that, uh, God willing, will be listening online as we get to share the gospel in even a broader way. Um, as I mentioned before, this week we're beginning a brand new uh, study on culture. And it's been um, months in the thinking and uh, weeks in the making as we have sort of put together this four-week uh, study. Uh, before we get into the content for today, I would like to encourage you to take out that uh, colored insert that you'd find in your service folder. And here's the reason. I, I think that what we're going to be able to do in our time together each week is to really lay a foundation for what the Bible says about our culture and about how to navigate it. But you individually have certain circumstances and situations that I don't know. And you're going to apply these things to your own circumstances. And so this back portion, this little Bible study on the back, will be a great opportunity for you to have a conversation with your, your spouses, with your family, with your loved ones about this really important um, topic, which is how to navigate culture with truth and grace. Have you ever had an opportunity to speak into someone's life with the hopes of making a difference? If you're a parent, I know you have. But very few of us have not, even if we're not parents, have not had an opportunity, a door opened, to speak into someone's life with the hopes of making a difference. But at the same time, has it ever happened that you weren't quite sure what to say or how to say it? And it wasn't so matter a fact that you didn't know what was right or wrong. You knew what was right, you knew what was wrong, but it was more a matter of what to say and how to do it. Because you could go in there to this situation, the door's open, <laughs> and you could just tell them what the truth was, whoever it might be, wash your hands and move on, and you would have made a point. But you didn't just want to make a point, did you? In a situation like that with someone that you loved, you wanted to make more than a point. You wanted to make a difference. Well, I have to tell you that as a pastor, even over the short 12 years that I've been a pastor, that these types of situations that need to be spoken into ha have greatly increased even over the, the 12 years that I've been in the ministry. And I know that these things pop up for you too. You know why I know that? Because you email me. And you call me. And you ask me. And what about my homosexual friend at work? Should I go to their wedding or not? What should I do? And what about my kid, my child who's made a decision to live together before marriage? What should I do about that? And the, and the questions go on and on, right? What about the Supreme Court legislation from a few months ago? Um, what about all this stuff that people are saying on Facebook. This is a little bit of an aside. You're never going to make a difference on Facebook. You'll make a point, but rarely is there a difference made on Facebook. So just know that before you post what you're feeling, okay? <laughs> and so many times, it's not a matter of knowing what is right and what is wrong. More so, it's a matter of how do I say it and what do I do? That is exactly what we're going to be digging into over the next four weeks in this series. And one of the reasons why this has become so difficult is this simple point. That when landscape changes, navigation becomes more difficult. 
If you're from Lakeville, you know all about this. It's called the corner of 185th and Highway 50. If you're not from Lakeville, here's what happened. They put a roundabout in there, okay? And us Minnesotans, we don't know much about roundabouts, okay? And so in the first week of the roundabout, with the landscape changing, there was 13 fender benders in the first week of the roundabout being in there. And let me tell you, it's still dangerous. I just drove over there about a week ago, and some gentleman to the side of me, just, you know, because he wanted to, swerved over into the lane that I was in. (laughs) If I hadn't pushed on the brakes, there would have been another fender bender in that roundabout. But but the fact remains, the truth remains, that when landscape changes, navigating gets more difficult. (laughs) The landscape of American culture is changing. Here's the way that I would say it, that for so long, for many years, that the Christian values were kind of the compass for American morality. That's no longer the case, at least not like it once was. And our country is changing. Did you know that when public schools first started in our country, that... um, Almost all of them taught creation as the way the world began. Did you know that not so long ago, maybe within some of your lifetimes, that public school teachers led their children in prayers, their students, in the name of Jesus? Did you know that not so long ago, um, almost every courthouse in the United States had a copy of the Ten Commandments available or posted? Did you know that not so long ago, there were certain laws called blue laws that disallowed for there to be businesses open, or at least certain ones, on Sunday. Why? Well, because Sunday was a day for the Lord. Sunday was a day for God. Things are changing, aren't they? Today, Americans wrestle with answers to questions that Americans long ago, even 20 years ago, didn't wrestle with as much. Questions like, when does life begin? And who has the right to end life? Questions like, um, what does marriage look like? Or what should it look like? Questions like, um, what types of things are okay to get a divorce for? And should it be just about anything or everything? Questions and answers to questions like, um, Is there many guidelines in the area of sexuality? Or, as long as two adults are consenting, does anything go? And the questions go on and on and on, and the truth is that the answers, Americans struggle with the answers more today than they did 20 years ago, 30 years ago, even longer ago. And I I, I listen to you as your pastor, and you listen to me, and and there certainly can be, even as I see some of your heads nodding this morning, some frustration around that, and I get it. But what I would also say is that we need to really consider how are we going to navigate this as Christians and as the church, and I will also say the church in America has not always done a great job at navigating it. In fact, I want to point out three ways that the church tends to navigate culture, not Bethlehem in specific, just in general, that are not helpful or biblical. The first way here on the screen, I got to point at this screen, (laughs) is that a church will choose to separate from culture. 
So a church that chooses to separate from culture, here's what happens. Their main point or their main intention is to make sure that everybody else is wrong and that they're right. And it might be true that they're right and the culture is wrong. But that becomes the overriding principle of their ministry, right and wrong. And guess what happens? Over time, walls begin to form between them and culture. And what happens is, here's the bad part of being a church that looks to just separate, is you lose an audience. You've got no one left to talk to because you've built a wall. Another way that churches can choose to respond to culture is, our next one is the opposite, to assimilate. So that's on the very end of the spectrum. A, a church uh, and Christians that decide, you know what, it's kind of like the, if you can't beat them, join them philosophy. Let's tailor our ministry and our message to the prevailing thoughts of culture. And that's bad too. You know why? Because then you don't stand for anything. You're just a dead fish flowing along in the river. <laughs> a third one is a church that, res that responds to culture by lamenting. Lament is this, this overriding, deep fear, anger, and also being scared, which some of us feel. But I will say that if the church's main thrust is to lament culture and wonder what's happening and just get all bogged down and huddled down in fear— they're going to miss the mission. The mission that Christ has given us. On the topic of fear, for a second. You don't need to be scared. When Jesus established the church, he said, on me, on Christ, I am going to build the church. And then what did he say? What promise did he say? That the gates of Hades will not be able to overcome it. Jesus still sits on his throne. Jesus is still king forever. We have nothing to fear, but we do need to consider what's the best way to respond to culture. And honestly, none of these by themselves is good. None of these are the appropriate response biblically. And in fact, there might be some people here today that have left the church because of these things. And they have felt that the church either has no impact, no relevance, or no purpose because they've responded to culture this way. So what we want to do this morning is to first remember our mission. Why are we here as a church or as Christians? And how does that direct our response? Here's a true statement. It's our first fill in the blank. We have been called as Christians, as a church, not merely to make a point that's easy, but instead to make or to have an eternal impact. And the way that we as a church and as Christians can make an internal impact in people's lives is by remembering two key elements that Jesus' entire ministry was about. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to establish those elements as described by a disciple of Jesus named John. So John is the writer of the third account, or I'm sorry, the fourth account of Jesus' life. It's self-titled, the Gospel of John. And whereas Matthew and Luke start their accounts of Jesus' life by recollecting Jesus' birth, logical place to start, John starts his in a different way. 
what he does is he essentially starts by giving the main point. The main point of this entire book is what I want you readers to understand is that Jesus was more than a man. That Jesus was God sent from heaven. God in the flesh. Verse 14 of chapter 1. The word, that's kind of a Greek way of saying God. We don't have time to dig down into that, so just take my word for it. The word God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. What John is saying, after having spent time with Jesus, is his response was, you know what, this was God, Jesus was. Jesus was God in the human flesh. Jesus was God with skin on him. I want you to think for a moment, that's, that's not an easy thing to understand, is it? That the eternal God would put skin on and come down and be like us? pretty amazing. You know, as hard as it is for us to get our minds around that, it would have been harder for the Jews. And most of that has to do with what they primarily focused on when it came to God. Yes, they knew about the promise of forgiveness and love, but their primary sort of interaction with God was probably best identified or, or explained by the Holy of Holies in the temple. The Holy of Holies was a room where God said, this is where his special God's special presence dwelt. Guess what happened if you ever went into the Holy of Holies? You died. And in fact, only one person, the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies and only one day a year. And in fact, Jewish tradition says that the Jews were so concerned about what might happen to the high priest, even on the special day, that Jewish tradition says that they would tie a rope around the high priest's ankle. So as if he did die, he wouldn't be stuck in there because they couldn't go in to get him and they'd be able to pull him out. And so people's interaction with God in the Old Testament was primarily one of God is holy and king and I'm sinful, and I'm not holy. And there was an awe. There was a justice. God is different, and he is. But for the Jews then, when they listened to John, and he says, you know what? Um, God came down in the flesh, and he actually spent time with me. And we ate together, and we slept together, and we... We did ministry together. This, this would have just totally blown the minds of the Jews. John actually continues here, verse 15. In fact, we have seen Jesus' glory. And when we saw Jesus' glory, the things that he did, the miracles that he did, the, the resurrecting from the dead, it is none other than the glory of God, the one and only. Jesus came from the Father, and he was full of grace, and full of truth. Here's what John is saying. He's saying that when I think about Jesus, he was the full embodiment of two things, grace and truth. Not 50% grace and 50% truth. It was 100% grace and 100% truth. 100% grace, you know what that means? Undeserved, unconditional love. Undeserved, unconditional forgiveness no matter what you have in your past and truth 
There's a standard of right and wrong. We're all accountable to God. Grace, truth. And Jesus was the full embodiment of both. Now, this would have been hard. The Jews would have been like, are you sure you mean grace, John? Isn't it uh, judgment and truth? I mean, the God we know is the one where you die when you go in his room. (laughs) Don't you mean justice and truth? Don't you mean standard of right and wrong and truth? And, And John said, no. It's grace and truth. Undeserved love and truth. That's what God, that's what Jesus was all about. Are you sure? And so John continues in verse 16. He says, this is a little bit of confusing because here's a different John. This is not John who was writing. This is John the Baptist. Not to get confused with John the Lutheran or John the Presbyterian or John the Catholic. No, this was John the Baptizer. Not He doesn't Baptist in the domination, okay? John the Baptizer, he testified concerning this Jesus. John cried out, saying, This, Jesus, was he of whom I said that he, Jesus, who comes after me, because John's ministry started first, so Jesus came after him, has surpassed me because Jesus was greater than John, because he was before me. (laughs) Because Jesus, while he came after John in ministry, is eternal because he's God. This Jesus is the guy John the Baptist talked about. He's the one. Verse 16. From the fullness of Jesus' grace, we all have received one blessing after another. The Greek is better. The English here does not do it justice. What the Greek says is that from Jesus, there is one grace after another grace after another grace. How do you describe that? I'm dating myself, but Pez dispensers. You know about Pez dispensers? Some of you little ones are like, Pez what? You know? You lift the head up and they get that little brick of a piece of candy, right? And you take it out, you put the head down, put the head back up. What do you get? Another little piece of candy. And over and over, you take one out, another one pops up, you take one out, another one pops up. That's Grace. I sin, receive grace. I sin again. Grace, love, forgiveness through Jesus is there for me. Over and over. And the way that John best described Jesus is that from the fullness of his grace, we've all received grace after grace after grace after grace, like a never-ending Pez dispenser of grace payment for all of our sins. And then in wrap-up, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus was the 100% embodiment of both of these things, grace and truth. One of my uh, good friends who's a pastor, he uh, sort of summarized this uh, about what this meant for Jesus in a better way than I could come up with, so I just used his words. It's our next fill-in-the-blank. Here's what's true about Jesus. He never dumbed down the truth, but he never turned down the grace. It's tough, isn't it? If you apply it to yourself, Jesus never dumbed down the truth, but he never turned down the grace. 
Now, I want you to think about this. Think for a moment if Jesus was all about truth and only truth. You know what would have happened? He would have come down, to he- come down from heaven, and he would have seen Matthew, one of the 12 disciples. Does anyone remember what Matthew was? What was his occupation before he became a disciple? He was a tax collector, exactly. And what Jesus would have said if he was only about truth is he would have said, Matthew, you chose to be a tax collector based on your incessant greed, and you also kind of forsook your entire nation by deciding to work for the Romans. That's horrible. God hates that about you. See ya. And then Peter, one of the other disciples, he, he would have said, you know, Peter, um, you have a temper problem. And you say one thing, and then you do the other when the pressure's on. God hates it that you're two-faced. Bye. And Mary Magdalene, she had an uh, adulterous past, more than likely. And Jesus would have come to her and would have said, if he was only about truth. You know what you've done in your past? <laughs> it's horrible. God hates adultery. See ya. And he would have gone back to heaven, and guess what he would have done? He would have made a point. But he wouldn't have made a difference. But instead, here's what Jesus did. He stayed here until he had endured the most horrible death anyone's ever experienced for people who were greedy and two-faced and adulterous until all sins of the entire world were paid for. And then he rose again. And then he went to heaven. On the other hand, if Jesus was only about grace and dumbed down the truth, it, I guess, I don't know, it'd have been like one big party. You know, come to Jesus' party. Because grace flows like a Pez dispenser, so do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Do what feels good. It doesn't matter. I don't care. That's not what he did either. You know what Jesus did, actually? (laughs) He amped up truth a lot of times. So if you read his Sermon on the Mount, there's this little sort of back and forth that Jesus has in conversation that happens at least three, if not more, times. And one of them, Jesus says this. He says, you've heard it said that it's wrong to murder. And everyone would have been like, yeah, of course. Everyone knows it's wrong to murder. And Jesus said, well, I tell you that anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And he amped up truth. And in another place, he said, you've, you've heard that it's said that it's wrong to commit adultery. Everyone had been like, yeah, yes, we know, that. we know that's wrong. Absolutely. Even culture admits that. But I tell you that any man who thinks of a woman lustfully in his heart has committed adultery already. Jesus never dumbed down the truth. And he never turned down the grace. He was the full embodiment of both. Isn't that amazing? Now, I said earlier that sometimes it's easier to understand what Jesus meant by seeing how 
Jesus acted in what he did. So I wanted to pick an example of what Jesus did and how Jesus applied this that applies to us today. Because let's make no bones about it. I'm going to say something you already know. The area of life that we struggle with the most when it comes to navigating culture is in the area of sexuality. Homosexual things, heterosexual things. There's just, in the area of sexuality, we as a culture so easily go out of God's will. And Jesus faced this too. He faced times where he needed to navigate sexual sins, sexual things that went outside of God's will. And so this particular instance is an example when some church leaders brought a lady who was caught in adultery to Jesus. And the church leaders brought this lady not because they cared about her, but because, in in essence, they wanted to make an example of her and trip Jesus up. So they brought the lady in front of Jesus and said, Jesus, the, the law tells us that if someone's caught in adultery or someone commits adultery, we are to stone them. What do you say? And here's what Jesus said, John chapter 8. Jesus straightened up and said to them, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. So what Jesus said was, yes, she might have sin, but you're so quick to judgment. If any of you has never had a lustful thought in your heart or mind, I got the stone. You can be the first one. If any of you have never had a greedy thought, come forward. I'll let you go first. If any of you, these people who are being very judgmental, if any of you have never sinned, then you be the first to throw the stone. What happened? We continue. At this, those who heard Jesus began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. So it was just Jesus and the woman. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Verse 12. Then neither do I condemn you. What's that? Grace or truth? You with me? Grace or truth? Absolutely. What Jesus is saying is, woman, you have hope. Woman, you have forgiveness. I'm not here just to make a point and condemn you. I am here to save you. There's hope for you. Grace. But Jesus wasn't done, though. And then Jesus said these next words. Go now and leave your life of sin. What's that? Truth or grace? You only have one option left. Truth. It wasn't, okay, never-ending Pez dispenser of grace. Doesn't matter what you do. It was, you have forgiveness, 
But the best thing for you, what God would want, is for you to do the right thing. Your relationship with God is going to be better when you leave the life, your life of sin. Dear woman, I care about you. You need to leave your sin. And Jesus, as our Savior, did this perfectly every single time. He was, again, the perfect embodiment of grace and truth. He was able to navigate it perfectly as Savior. Here's the thing. We can't perfectly, can we? In fact, there's some things I need you to be aware of that often happens with Christians and with, with churches that oftentimes we need to be careful of is that we, when addressing people with grace and truth, we can often have biases towards certain sins as being worse than others. Even a, a hatred towards certain sins. It's interesting, though. We never hate as much the sins that we are guilty of. It's always, you know, another lifestyle or another type of sin. It's never our own that we hate so vehemently. Um, we have certain personality traits that make this navigation hard. Like, I bet you in your family growing up that you had a, you know, if you had two parents at home, one was probably grace and the other was truth a lot of times. And you knew when you were in trouble to go to grace, right? Which was probably mom most of the time, maybe not all the time, but grace and truth. We, some of us lean towards grace to the detriment of truth. And what happens then is that usually we do that because we don't want to ruffle feathers. We don't want to cause an issue. And so we just ignore truth. On the flip side, we have some who lean more towards truth naturally. It's the guy at the family reunion that gets all riled up and upset with where culture is going and this anger pours from them and yet there's not a word of mention of hope, a word of mention of Christ. It's just anger. Grace and truth. We naturally lean one way or the other. You know what we need to recognize as we navigate culture? That both is important, and our next fill-in, the blank. Applying grace and truth will create a healthy tension. That in fact, as you navigate culture, things in your heart, things in your family, things with friends, that if there is not tension there, there's probably a problem. If you're not wrestling with it in your heart, what should I say, how should I say it, there's probably a problem because tension can be good. Let me give you an example. Um, our family often goes on bike rides, and in some ways I love my bike, but in other ways it's kind of the lemon. Here's why. Because almost every single bike ride, at least once, I'll start pedaling, and it's like, it's the easiest thing in the world to pedal this bike. And after once or twice of this happening, I know exactly what happened. The chain fell off. And so it's so easy to pedal, but I ain't going anywhere. It's easy to pedal, but it's not good. There's no tension, but it's not good. To ignore grace or truth might allow you less tension, but it's not good. It's so important for us as a church, so important for us as a culture, 
to continue to wrestle with the tension of grace and truth. Quick, when it comes to witnessing opportunities, is not usual. A quick word, a quick statement, one-time conversation, and everything's done, that's not usual. In fact, I've, I've learned from many of you here at this congregation over my time. Um, I think when I first started my ministry, I, I think I, I had a misunderstanding of not truth and grace, but just of the time it takes and the work it takes to properly share it. And then I watched some of you navigate children adult children who are maybe making some decisions that you weren't in favor of. And I watched some of you navigate that with such truth, but also patience and grace. You made sure your child knew what was right or wrong. You also looked for opportunities to let them know that Jesus loved them. And you allowed there to be a bridge. And this isn't easy. And sometimes we go into one ditch and then into the other ditch. But we need to continue to struggle with the tension of applying truth and grace. So here's your homework assignment. The first thing I want you to do is I want you to rejoice in the fact that you are a recipient of truth and grace of your Lord and Savior Jesus, that you have been blessed with forgiveness even though you struggle with sin, and so do I. And then, as you consider the other people in your life, that maybe there's an open door for you to be a blessing to them, not because you're better than them, because we're not, but because they're there in our life, I want you to pray. And here's what I want you to pray for. I want you to pray for wisdom, number four, and discernment. Wisdom and discernment. And I want you to, what that means is I want you to pray to God to help you better understand what does the loved one in your life need. Do they need to be reminded of truth right now? Do they need to be shared grace? And there's some good questions that you can ask yourself as you pray for God's answers to these questions. Questions like, um, how long has this person known God's will in this area? Is it brand new to them? Do they even know God's will yet? Because if they don't, that's where I need to start. In a loving way, share what God's will is. How can I best address that sin? How can I best address that cultural issue? What's the proper balance? Truth and grace. And here's why this is so important, my friends. You have been called by God not to make a point, just, but to make a difference in this world. There are some people in your life that you might be the only one that they're going to listen to right now. And if you don't speak, no one will. The last, some of the last words that Jesus shared with his people was not... Go out and make sure everyone knows your rights and they're wrong. He said, go and make disciples. 
all nations. So may we do that with truth, but also with grace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time in the Word. Thank you for John's words here that remind us of who your Son was. God in the flesh, that embodiment of grace and of truth. Lord, thank you for opportunities that we have to speak grace and truth not only into our own hearts, but also to take opportunities to be the instrument to speak it to others. Help us during this time of changing culture and landscape to continue to pray for, we pray for wisdom and discernment to navigate it with truth and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.